Pembrokeshire, from Pembrokeshire, this is Pure West Radio. I'm Charlie James and here's the latest for Pembrokeshire. A man has been arrested after police found drugs in his home worth more than £18,000. Nabil Saeed of Haverford West was arrested on June 24th after David Powers Police carried out a warrant at his house in Merlins Bridge. During the search, 51 grams of cocaine was found and Saeed was arrested. He was later charged with three counts of possessing Class A drugs with intent to supply, possessing Class B drugs, driving without insurance and failing to stop when required by the police. He is due to appear at Swansea Crown Court on July 27th. Two new cases of the coronavirus were found in Ceredigion and Carmarthenshire yesterday, with no new cases here in Pembrokeshire. Dr Jiri Shankar, Incident Director for COVID-19 Outbreak Response at Public Health Wales, has said that Public Health Wales welcomes the reopening of the majority of schools across Wales to enable pupils and staff to check in and catch up before the autumn term starts in September. Public Health Wales continues to work with multi agency partners regarding the cluster of cases at Keypack Merthyr. People who have tested positive for COVID-19 over the weekend and their household contacts have been instructed to self-isolate and any risk to the wider community is being controlled. There are no plans to take any wider public health action such as school or workplace closures and no outbreak has been declared. Public Health Wales also welcomes the relaxation of lockdown measures but reminds the public that we are not yet back to business as usual. Learners returned to school across Pembrokeshire yesterday following a mammoth effort behind the scenes to prepare. In an effort to check in, catch up and prepare ready for the next academic year, children have returned to school on a part-time basis with classes no bigger than eight and schools running at a maximum capacity of a third of all pupils. Some schools in the county are running shorter school days and closing one day a week to allow a significant deep clean. Classrooms have been adapted to allow pupils to maintain social distancing and lunchtimes and playtimes have been significantly altered so that the Welsh Government's guidelines can be followed. Pembrokeshire County Council has taken the decision to support a four-week return after canvassing local schools, the last day of term in the county being Friday, July 24th. However, the decision will be kept under review by the council as it awaits confirmation from the Welsh Government on the dates of the second week of the October half term. It will also be subject to review in case of an increase in the R number, which is the average number of secondary infections produced by one infected person. Preparations for the return to school during the pandemic have included the distribution of 14,000 signs, 1,500 litres of hand sanitizer, and 1,270 paper towel holders, all provided by Pembrokeshire County Council. Other work that has taken place to ensure that pupils are welcomed back in as safe a manner as possible includes routine health and safety checks at schools and testing water supplies. Pembrokeshire County Council leader David Simpson has said that staff from across the council have worked together and extremely closely with our schools to ensure that everything schools need, they get. Councillor Guy Woodham, the Cabinet Member for Education and Lifelong Learning, has said that the teamwork to prepare schools to welcome back our learners has been fantastic to see. Things will look different, things will be different within our schools, but we are preparing for the new normal for our learners, with the safety of pupils and staff at the heart of everything we have been doing. I'm Charlie James and you're up to date on Pure West Radio. Pure West Radio. And welcome back to part 2 
of the West Files. And in part one, of course, we were talking UFOs and aliens and lights in the sky. But, you know, I want to change it down a bit. And um, first of all, I want to check in with my uh, normal co-host who's in hiding. Are you there? I'm here. Yeah, we are still in hiding. I'm still in hiding. (coughs) Yeah, because, you know, my first love and passion is, of course, ghosts. Of course. Uh, there is a case that, that uh, it was a, you may remember, The Conjuring 2 movie. The con- yeah, yeah, yeah. The second one. Were they, uh, yeah. Well, those investigators, um, we always used to joke that there should have been a Conjuring 3, which would be um, this one. Uh, this was the most haunted house in England in its day. Um and it was a place out down down on the Essex border called Borley Rectory. You may even ah. have, I think we may have mentioned it periodically. We have on the mentioned show. Borley Rectory a um, few times. Yeah, but for the for the uh, for those who are still playing catch up with Borley Rectory, I've never heard of Borley Rectory. Mm. Um, this this building down on the Essex border, which the Essex and whatever counties on the other side of the border. Don't look at me. Yeah, don't look <laughs> at me either. I'm from the north. Uh, I'm from up north. It was built in 1863 um, by uh, the Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bolt. That's a name to conjure it. This is a you know it was a sort of grandiose red brick fit monstrosity with 23 rooms, three staircases. And the ground stretched about four acres, um, right on the edge of this sort of hamlet overlooking um, the, 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 uh, I think the town's down the bottom is called Long Melford. Anyway, um, in short, it was haunted. Um, you know, and, and there were different legends associated with it and why it was haunted. One of them was that, um, and this was a local legend, uh, that a monk was beheaded after having eloped with a nun. Ooh, that's, no. That's always the way, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, there was also the periodic appearance of a phantom coach and horses with a headless driver. Uh, I heard about that yeah. one, yeah. Read and another that. of the legends that was associated with it, it was on, built over the site of a former monastery. Uh, and uh, this monastery oh, yeah. was connected by an underground tunnel that ran several miles to a convent. And uh, the monk and the nun, nun from the convent, um, what was it say? Uh, that a former Roman Catholic nun... Uh, who who married into the Waldegrave family um, was in 1667 strangled by her husband in a building on that occupied the site before the rectory was built and she was buried beneath the cellar floor. Oh. Uh-huh. A lot of them are though. Well, this is what happens. You either you either wall them up or um, you bury them. Or you bury them. Um, Anyway, after after the builder died, this this uh, this Henry Dawson Ellis, his son became the rector, um, who also had the same name, so they called him Harry, um, and he became the rector. And then after he passed away, now Harry was a peculiar character who who liked to um, commune with with the spirits. I think is is, is yeah. appropriate, yeah. Um, but the so we used to sit in the summer house and watch uh, watch out for the phantom nun. Now this phantom nun is probably the most enduring legend of the site, and there are many accounts from um, p- 
people in the village uh, going to and from work on the farms passing Borley Rectory um, and seeing the figure of a nun leaning on the gatepost looking mournfully down the lane um, and there are various accounts of her face she looks soulful and mournful and very sad one or two people even tried to speak to her and uh, nothing happened uh, I think the most famous uh, account of the nun takes place uh, when uh, the Bull family when um, Henry Dawson Ellis Bull um, in so this would be July the 28th 18 something or other 1880 something I think if memory serves me right so that would have been yesterday 1880 something yeah this is why we're doing it because <laughs> we were very See, I, close I, to the anniversary I can be intelligent <laughs> and the nun appeared one of the one of uh, Harry Bull uh, one of the one of the family one of the sisters one of the Bull sisters uh, had been out visiting friends and she returned across the um came in through the bottom gate and came across the, the garden and she saw the nun walking along through the garden and she called to her uh, other siblings to come look come look the nuns there nuns uh, so they came out and several of the sisters of this nun walking the pathway and July the 28th became um, the date when she was most likely to reappear and I remember, ah. I remember about ten or twelve years ago, um, we we spent a weekend um, of July the twenty eighth at Borley, on the site of the rectory, uh, waiting for the nun to appear, to appear. Sadly, she didn't. It's also yeah. the night where uh, Borley Borley Hamlet. It's such a tiny, tiny little place, um, but this story was so popular that even in the nineteen twenties. Um, through the 1930s uh, people would get do you remember sharabangs people yeah. would get sharabangs out from colchester um, to come and look for the ghost at borley to come and see this nun and it goes on to the present day I, i'll wager that yesterday you know if it wasn't for lockdown and even if it was i would still wager that um, there were people in the village so much so that they put a portable police station um, in the village Really, uh, to to shoo people away, and the village doesn't have a strip ha, doesn't have a village name sign um, on the on well, Hamlet on the uh, the Hamlet of Borley because every time they put one up, somebody comes. Somebody along. takes it. Yeah, it gets taken by souvenirs and ghost hunters. Um, now, I mean, this this place literally has you name it. This place has got every form of paranormal activity. Uh, Isn't it one of the most um, investigated houses as well. Well, it is. Um, I mean, the servant, one of the servants of the bulls, uh, uh, Mrs. Byford, claimed to have heard footsteps when there was nobody else in the building. Uh, the former headmaster of the Colchester Royal Grammar School, uh, Mr. P. Shaw Jeffrey, had stayed at the rectory various times in the 1880s and described lots of small adventures with stones falling from nowhere and objects moving themselves. And he also claimed to have seen the nun several times and had often heard the phantom coach go clattering past um it was the 28th of july 1900 that four of the bull sisters uh, witnessed the spectral nun in the garden and ah. her later appearances were witnessed by others including the gardener fred cartwright a local carpenter and a village girl um, now harry bull who was the son of henry who built the rectory he 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 returned as an apparition 
Uh, and this, this really, uh, it came to the fore in 1929 when Harry Price, the investigator, yeah. um, went along to find out for himself. You know, he'd heard accounts. Uh, the 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 incumbent at the time, um, the Reverend uh, Foister, Lionel Foister, had got in touch with the newspapers and said, "Help, help! I've got a ghost," and he didn't get the "We got one" uh, response. <laughs> Uh, they they duly sent a reporter along, and uh, the reporter realised that there was something amiss, and he got in touch with Harry Price, who was perhaps the one of the very few, perhaps the leading world's leading paranormal investigator and ghost hunter. And he went along and immediately realised that this was, uh, you know, a case with um, untoward things happening. Um, and these things, you know, these range from writing appearing on the walls of the rectory, messages asking for light and mass and prayers to be said. Oh gosh! Um, and there was there was uh, bottles being smashed, and um, they held a séance. Uh, then after uh, after the foisters left, and uh, the next rector came and went, uh, didn't stay long. I wonder um, why. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, they held a seance in 1938, um, in the March of 38. And uh, the seance, they, commun- they, they, they got in touch with a spirit called Sunex Amores, whatever. Uh, there's been no translation of what that might mean. But this spirit predicted that the rectory would burn down and be destroyed by fire. And that the the bones of the the nun would be found in the cellar. So uh, nothing actually it didn't burn down. Um, but eleven months to the very day in 1939, the owner who had bought it from the church by then uh, inadvertently knocked over an oil lamp. So he claimed he on the insurance the report, and he burnt it. He, well, he burnt a substantial amount of it to the ground yeah. because of wartime. It was never rebuilt, and it was eventually demolished in 1944. So they they undertook some excavations uh, as they were demolishing it, and they found parts of a female skull in the cellar. Oh! And uh, they were given duly given Christian burial, and. Yeah. It still attracted the ghost hunters, though. But they realised that the, 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 the ghosts, the, the paranormal phenomena, had moved to, had crossed over the road to Borley Church. And that the nun was still being seen on her own, on her old stamping ground, and the carriage was still being reported, and there were figures and apparitions being, um, being seen. So but, they just moved residents. But, the moved residents. Well, nobody had ever looked at the church before <laughs> because they were focusing all their attention, of course, on the rectory. On the rectory. And so they, they went and had a, a, a look and they, they could hear the sounds of organ music from the empty church and lights flashing inside the empty church. And this led to um, an investigation by a group called the Enfield Paranormal Research Group who went along in 1970 armed with um, tape recorders to find out for themselves what happened, what was happening. Mm. And um, we, they, they made a recording. Um, they made a, a 
kind of early version of Most Haunted, all done right. on audio. And that was lodged with the archives of the Society for Psychical Research. And it's such a fascinating, it, it actually lasts about half an hour. Um, you know, it's a, an episode in its own right. And uh, with permission, we're going to play that. And it actually oh, has the recordings that they made during their investigation at Borley Church. And it's been, this, this, this recording has been examined by, you know, investigators in the present day and has never been satisfactorily explained. So, uh, so that's what we're going to be doing for the next um, remainder of the show. Oh, awesome! So, uh, yeah. So, if you if you want to hear um, a forerunner of Most Haunted, you know, forget this stuff live on social media. This this groups out there hunting for ghosts. Um, this is what they were doing back in the 1970s. 1970s. Yeah. And do you know what? I think the evidence... I've, I mean, I've, I've analysed this recording. Uh, yeah. The, the noises that they gained from the um, from the recording. And they, they're they a bit scary. Oh, don't turn the lights off. Well, it's still just about light outside. Um, yeah. But yeah. We'll, we'll wind the clock back to 1970 and to the Enfield paranormal research group and their investigation of the church at Borley in the hamlet of Borley on the county boundaries of Essex and another county <laughs> <laughs> whose name has completely eluded me so uh, have a listen sit back um, put the cat out and enjoy the show On the borders of the counties of Essex and Suffolk near Long Melford is the site of the most haunted house in England, Borley Rectory. Since it was built in 1863 by the Reverend H.D. Bull, it has been plagued with psychic happenings. And these events have been witnessed and experienced by more people than any other alleged haunted house anywhere in the world. The late Harry Price, a psychical researcher of some fame, undertook a painstaking and thorough investigation of Borley, witnessing many of the phenomena himself. This work is recorded in two of his books, The Most Haunted House in England and The End of Borley Rectory. As a haunted house, Borley Rectory had everything. It was a gaunt Victorian building which had been added to from time to time. Everyone who lived in the house, and literally hundreds of visitors, claimed that they felt, heard, or saw things which could not be explained by normal means. The catalogue of events is so varied, it covers almost the entire field of psychic happenings. They include the movement and sometimes materialisation and disappearance of objects, the ringing of bells, despite the fact the wires had eventually been cut, the opening and closing of locked doors, inexplicable noises, and curiously, odours, sometimes pleasant, sometimes decidedly unpleasant, like the smell of decaying corpses. Many people claim to have seen a phantom coach and horses near the house, and probably the most famous ghost of all is the Borley Nun. Strangely enough, the destruction of the rectory was predicted in a seance, and in February 1939, the place was completely gutted by fire, which seemed to start spontaneously while the building was unoccupied. After the fire, 
Harry Price continued his investigation. He excavated the cellars, and here he unearthed part of the skull of a woman. Assuming that this belonged to the ghostly nun, he gave it a Christian burial at Liston Churchyard, and it was assumed that peace would reign over the troubled site. But did it? Geoffrey Groom Hollingsworth and Roy Potter do not believe that this is the case, and since March 1970 they've been investigating both Borley Church, which is also alleged to be haunted, and the site of the rectory. They're dedicated down-to-earth people who've spent hours and hours on the project, often during freezing weather conditions. They've also gone out of their way to fill in the biographies of the people who originally lived there. They were particularly interested in the members of the Bull family, and their investigation showed that previous biographers had not been very accurate with their facts. Uh, we decided the Bull family really had never really been delved into properly. When we say properly, uh, various people had taken the Bull family and got dates completely wrong, names completely wrong, um, we decided that it would be well worth going to the history of the Bull family, because they featured so prominently at Borley regarding their manifestations there. So, um, after travelling many hundreds of miles, viewing dozens of people, and by sheer fluke, we bought a diary. Well, it was written by the eldest Bull girl, Caroline Sarah Elizabeth Bull. And of all the, the Bull girls, she was the only girl that married. And uh, she wrote this diary when she was 21 years of age. And uh, in 1885, the rectory was a very, very happy place. Although uh, Papa, in those days, knew all about the, uh, the nun and uh, used to sit many hours in, in the uh, summer house on the lawn. In fact, he erected it to watch the nun along the wall. Coming back to Caroline, yes. uh, is, is there any record of psychic happenings in the diary? Uh, we, we, yes, she had a very, 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 very strong influence over moving chairs. Mind you, everybody we have interviewed uh, has said that the Bull family were not a strange family, they were a Victorian family, and what they said could be taken as absolute gospel truth. They weren't living in another world, they were down-to-earth people. Today, the villagers are reticent to talk about the happenings at Borley, and this is quite understandable. The publicity which followed Harry Price's investigations drew crowds of tourists to the area. Unfortunately, some of these people misbehave quite badly, causing damage to property and making life difficult for the residents. But the investigators did manage to gather some eyewitness reports. One man travelling home at night had a terrifying experience. He was coming on his motorbike and, uh, to his amazement, coming across the field, across the road, into the rectory grounds, a coach and horses uh, with a coachman on, uh, and uh, it passed. he went right through it, actually. He got a terrible cold sensation. But this experience was not unique, for during the last war, a soldier had an identical encounter. Apparently he also was on a motorbike as a dispatch rider, uh, and he didn't know anything at all about Borley. And he was coming up to Borley Church, up the hill, toward the rectory on the left and the church on the right, when, to his amazement, just the same thing happened again. Uh, he saw this coach and horses coming along across the field uh, and passed right in front of him, because he, he, he went right through it too. He disclosed it to his wife, but uh, he didn't like telling anybody else because he felt such, a, such an idiot. But then he did a bit of investigation. He asked uh, one or two villagers in Borley, this was during the wartime, and, uh, and they said, oh yes, uh, that's right, that's the coach and horses of Borley, and it's coming along the old uh, river road. 
like many of the investigators before them, Potter and Groom Hollingsworth experienced a wealth of psychic events for which they have no rational explanation. The first thing we ever did come across there were the footsteps on the road. Past the, we where we were, we had the car parked, past the church gate, they got in, up to about in line with the church cottage and then they ceased. We got, only got this twice, um, but it was definitely footsteps. Recording the supernatural can be a costly business, particularly if the spirit at the other end of the microphone doesn't seem to want to be taped. An expensive tape recorder was set up in the porch of Borley Church and left running unattended. After some minutes, there was a loud crash in the porch. The two volunteers keeping watch on the church were so frightened they daren't go forward to see what had happened. Instead, they asked for help via their walkie-talkies. By this time, I got in touch with Roy and he came along. And he said, well, come on, we'll get straight down to the porch. And of course, we went straight down to the porch. And to our dismay and horror, on the porch floor, uh, which is stone, worse luck for us, was our tape recorder, which was, uh, well, it was pretty well battered. And all the tape had come off the reels, it was all over the place. And we could never really account uh, what happened, because there certainly wasn't anybody knocking about. Since the demolition of the rectory, an orchard has been planted on the site. But this doesn't seem to have removed the cause of the hauntings for a wide variety of noises have been heard there, including raps, a panting dog, the sound of smashing crockery, and heavy furniture being moved about. And it was here that the investigators had a very odd experience indeed. And here again, it was moonlight. The funny thing is that most of the time things have happened at Borley, but there's been a full moon. Uh, this time we were in the garden of the bungalow, uh, there's a small fence which runs along by the side of the bungalow which separates the ground of the bungalow from where the rectory was. We were stood there, very, very quiet, and all of a sudden we heard this thudding in the rectory grounds. It was kind of thud, 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 and a most peculiar sound which we couldn't account for at all. And then we saw the, the fruit trees are growing actually where the rectory stood. The fruit trees, the branches of the fruit trees moved. Uh, and there was no wind at all, it was absolutely still. But the most remarkable thing of this uh, was that something came to the fence and it was an almighty thump. And that's the only time I've ever seen my colleague Roy here step back. At first we, we thought it might be some animal or wildlife that was moving about, so we, we threw stones in the, in the vicinity of the sound in case it was an animal, hoping it would scurry away, but this didn't perturb it at all, it just carried on in the general direction towards the fence. And then, as it came towards the tree, this tree seemed to shake about a bit. So we looked down to see if anything was down there, we saw nothing, and then there was this great big bang on the fence, and that is when I stepped back, thinking, what is it, is somebody going to come over? Yet we saw nothing at all. Oh, uh, another, another peculiar thing, now this wasn't for one, this was, uh, it was misty, it was a very misty night. Uh, this was somewhere about three o'clock in the morning, and we were all concentrating on the London's walk. When all of a sudden we heard voices, actually girls' voices and men's voices, and there was laughter and merriment. But somehow, we didn't think much of the time, and, and in fact one uh, of the team said, Oh God, there's somebody coming in the roadway at three o'clock in the morning. So with that, we went down towards the roadway, and there wasn't anybody about on the road whatsoever. And when I walked towards the hedge, bordering the road, the voices seemed to be concentrating on the hedge, just like coming along. But um, this is the tragedy. This happened the week after we'd had that incident with the tape recorder in the church porch, and we hadn't got any tape recorder with us. Um, 
And then these voices carried on, carried on. They, they were very clear. Very, very clear. So much so, Roy wasn't at all satisfied about this. Oh, he said, there must be somebody down the road. So he got in his car and he coasted, I didn't put the engine on, he coasted down the hill. He stayed down there and got his walkie-talkie out and said, there's nobody down here whatsoever. There's nobody along the Long Melford Road. I quite believe this because it's three o'clock in the morning. We thought it might be somebody coming home from a dance. You know, yeah. we thought with the sound of travel perhaps from the Long Melford Road across the river and that, that would be... Anyway, we weren't really satisfied with this. And, um, we then tried the following visit. We tried an experiment out. And this time, we got two of the team to go down on the Long Melford Road and to shout to see whether we could really hear them. But we couldn't hear them at all. Another strange thing we had only once was the smell, wasn't it? Oh, yes. It was a very, it was very windy. It was, it was about, what, um, 11 o'clock, wasn't it? 11 o'clock before midnight. And it was only confined to a 10-foot square. And you'd yes. think that if you stepped out of this 10-foot area, with the wind blowing, you'd smell it. But you could corner this square off by with four of us, and it was only in this particular well, square you could smell it. Well, I would do that. An, an odd odour. Now, here is a description of the sighting of a ghost by these two men. This sighting lasted over 12 minutes. It was no mere fleeting impression, no imagination. This really happened. They actually saw the ghost of the Borley Nun. Listen now as Geoffrey Groom Hollingsworth takes up the story. I was stood in one corner of their garden, looking down towards where the nuns walk started. The night was rather chilly, but I felt exceptionally cold, and I got a queer sensation. And I happened to look down to the corner, the opposite corner of the garden from where I was stood, and I saw this figure approaching. I couldn't discern what it was properly. And then I could see it was definitely somebody with a cow and a habit. Well, I thought now, you know, it's somebody pulling my leg over, you know, and all of a sudden this figure seemed to glide across their garden. Well, I was still rather sceptical until it came to the fence and hedge which, uh, which borders their garden. And then it went through there without making any noise whatsoever. So I thought, well, now, the nearest one I can call to here and get here as quick as possible would be Roy, who was on the road. So I contacted Roy. In the meantime, the figure turned round, came back again, crossed the garden, and disappeared through the garage that they have. And I thought, oh, good God, it's too late. He won't see anything, because that'll probably be the finish. The figure then came out from the garage and came with about 12 feet off me. I was able to observe uh, the figure properly, which was a nun in a habit, but the habit was grey. Uh, the face, from what I could see, wasn't of a young novice, as people previously said before. I would say a woman somewhere in the 60s. And Roy must have seen exactly the same thing, because he stopped absolutely dead. And then the nun went through the hedge again. He then came quietly and joined me, and we managed to climb over and follow her, keeping about 12 feet behind. And this was the most interesting point here, because when she had crossed this hedge, she then came across a ditch the uh, owner of this rectory cottage had dug. There was no water in it. Uh, there was a plank by the means you could get across. Uh, she went across there, just as though the whole thing was filled in. Well, Roy and I managed to scramble over the, 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 the plank that was there. We then kept her within sight, well, about 12 feet, and then she disappeared through a pile of bricks that this man had got in the back of the garden, all stacked up about 15 foot high. She disappeared through there, and that was the last I saw of her. 
Were, were you frightened when you saw this ghost? Well, no. <laughs> uh, neither was I frightened. I, I will say this, that uh, I'm not bragging about this, but uh, I don't think there's anything to be afraid of in this... Uh, because, well, in this instance, I didn't feel anything, any kind of animosity or any... Uh, it, was a, it was a sensation, very cold sensation, but it was peaceful. It was tranquil. But uh, Roy here isn't afraid of anything. I think he's less afraid than I am. After listening to a description like that one, we had to admit we felt very sceptical about the whole thing. Were these men pulling our legs? Or did these things actually happen? The only way to get an answer was to join them on their next visit to Borley. We decided to arrive just before midnight, not because this is supposed to be a bewitching hour, but to offset the chance of other people being in the area who might disturb us. We selected the church for our first investigation, and before doing anything else, we searched the building thoroughly. Now we're just going into the vestry. No, there's nobody here. That's a cupboard. That's locked. There's certainly no human being in the church. We've searched the entire church now. After this, we placed a cassette recorder by the altar, and then two of us took up station in a pew at the opposite end of the church and instructed the others to lock us in. It was an eerie experience, and there certainly were some odd sounds generated, including loud and small raps. During our vigil, we'd heard an odd sort of bump sound originating near the altar. This was picked up by the recorder at that end of the building, and was so strange, we've repeated it three times for you to hear. So as to be absolutely certain that none of the team were in any way responsible for these sounds, we then locked two cassette machines into the church. One by the altar, and the other at the opposite end of the building, by the main door. And then we sealed the church and kept a watch around it for the next half an hour. It was during this period the ghost decided to make its presence known. And to our utter astonishment, we recorded the sound of it opening a door. But a door which doesn't exist. It's interesting to note that the cassette machine placed by the main door picked up this sound as well, but at a much fainter level. And so we had a pretty good idea of where it had originated. It was obvious that the noise couldn't have come from the main door to the church, and so we immediately paid attention to the only other door in the building, the chancel door. The noises that we picked up on the previous recording seem to have come from this door. It's got a curtain over it. doesn't look as though it's been moved. Now, can you try sliding that bolt back to see what sound it makes? It doesn't squeak. By now, our opinion of the haunting had changed considerably. And the following week, we returned to Borley Church to continue the investigation. We entered the building at about half past twelve but the atmosphere within seemed quite normal. So normal, in fact, that we remarked about it, and the first half-hour's recording proved to be negative.
for the second session, we set up a semi-professional stereo tape recorder with two high-quality microphones, one of which was placed near the altar and the other about halfway down the aisle in the centre of the building. And in addition, a cassette machine was also set up by the altar. Having thoroughly searched the building, we started the machines running and locked them in. And as we did so, we felt a change in the atmosphere. One of the team said he felt as though he's being watched by somebody, and we all felt cold. This run proved to be very interesting, for after a few minutes, the microphone placed in the centre of the church picked up a clatter, as though some object had been thrown down near it. For some reason, which we cannot explain, a considerable amount of static seemed to be generated, just before and during the sound. A few minutes later, the recorder began to pick up static again, and then there were the faint sounds of something moving about in the vicinity of the altar. The next sound was quite unexpected, and it sent a chill through our marrows, for the microphone in the centre of the church picked up quite clearly what obviously is a human sigh. This is so remarkable, we've repeated it three times at a slightly slower speed. The humming in the background is the fans of electric heaters warming the building. During the following session, the cassette recorder jammed completely, and somehow the tape was pulled out and strewn about all over the altar. It seemed as though this was an indication that our presence was resented, and as we feared that damage might occur to the tape machine, we packed it away and left a replacement cassette machine by the altar. This was not a top quality product and it tended to pick up the sound of its own motors running. Nevertheless, it recorded some very strange sounds. First of all, there was a sort of whirring noise. We thought that perhaps this sound might have been made by some animal. There didn't seem to be any other explanation for it. But the next one ruled that theory out. At about a quarter to four in the morning, we recorded the sound of the door being opened again. Although this was similar to the previous one, it lacked the squeak of the bolt. After this, we decided to break the sequence of visits and to try again during the summer. We wanted to check to see if the warm, dry conditions had any effect on the haunting. For security reasons, we kept the date of our visit a secret. And as an additional safeguard, we changed our minds a couple of times, finally setting off in July. It was a very dark evening, but warm enough for us not to have to wear top coats. We started recording at about 1am, and the tapes revealed just the natural ambience of the building and nothing else. There was not a single click or rap audible. But as we entered the church at about a quarter to two, we all felt a change in the atmosphere. It's hard to describe the sensation. Some of us felt tingles running through our bodies. Others claimed they felt there was a presence in the building. We certainly felt that the next session would produce a result.
and it did. It started with the sounds of movement somewhere near the altar. This was followed by the sound of a door shutting, but once again a door which doesn't exist. After this, there was about ten minutes silence, when only the natural ambience of the building and the cassette recorder motor could be heard. And then there was a crash, as though something had been knocked over. Then we became aware of an increase in the background noise on the tape, and another strange sound occurred. It ended with a kind of pop. This was followed by a much louder pop or explosion. We've amplified this and repeated it three times. The following sound occurred ten minutes later, and it really sent shivers down our spines. It was the sort of effect one imagines haunted houses to produce. It originated just in front of the altar rail, and yet the floor there is of stone. If those were footsteps, they must have belonged to a very large and powerful man. Eight minutes later, there was another sound generated, but we have no idea what it represents. We returned to the church the following August, and during the small hours of the morning, we all observed a glow around the chancel door, as though a phosphorescent aura were being generated. This night, the ghost made its presence known by producing some more sounds, which ended with a very frightening grunt or sigh. Listen as this sigh is repeated. For the fifth visit, we decide to man the church throughout the entire night. On previous occasions, we seem to get the best results by leaving the equipment locked into the empty building. We'd thought that perhaps the human presence had some adverse effect on conditions. At about half past four in the morning, three of the team kept a vigil from the choir stalls adjacent to the altar, and this proved to be a memorable and frightening occasion. Once again, the church became cold, 
despite the fact it was a warm summer's night. There were numerous clicks and raps from the vicinity of the font, and at one time we heard a sound as though heavy timbers were being crushed, but in the darkness we couldn't see what was happening. Then we began to observe tiny points of light hovering in the curtain behind the font, and on one of the pews about a quarter of the way down the church. At first we thought we couldn't believe our own eyes, and we broke the silence to speak about it. I think I must be getting tired of that. I keep seeing things. And Jerry, are you watching Peter the the curtain might have yeah. The first curtain. Another pews, the first few pews. Yes, that's where I'm seeing them. That's why the floor. It lights up the floor as well. The main one is up in the curtain. Hey? On the right hand side, right in the curtain. They're tiny specks, aren't they? They're like, uh, as you said, they're all like fireflies. Was it Yes. Yeah. Very curious, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, there's one up here again, then. Yeah. No, you're not seeing things, Peter. The three of us can see them, so it obviously exists, whatever it is, like a strange phenomena. They are just like little white points of light flashing. Because it was my eyes going funny. After a while, the lights began to approach us, and we all felt apprehensive. We were locked into the building, and we knew that there were no other human beings inside with us. As we watched the lights, they changed into long strips, and then something threw an object at us. It's a strip this time, isn't it? It's a strip. Now, that was fantastic. We've no idea what that was. It certainly made all of us jump. It's curious that that seemed to have been tied up, but you're getting colder and colder. It's like a build-up of power. It's very cold in the church now. Very cold indeed. Top of my head's gone quite cold now. Honestly, I think if I had hair up there, it would be standing on end. Immediately after this, we conducted yet another painstaking and thorough search of the church. But we could find nothing to account for the incident. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that whatever produced those sounds was trying to communicate directly with us. Although it might be argued that the throwing of that object and the violent attack on the tape recorder left in the porch indicate that perhaps somebody or something resents the presence of investigators. Perhaps we shall never know the answer. But one thing is certain, for despite exorcism attempts, seances and the burial of that skull fragment, Something remains, and although the rectory is no longer there, the surrounding area can still be called the most haunted site in England. In the 
shark, do 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 do. Grandpa shark, do 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 do. Grandpa shark. Let's go hunting.
were cute, but you're not Cause the drinks bring back all the memories Of everything we've been through Toast to the ones here today Toast to the ones that we lost on the way Cause the drinks bring back all the memories And the memories bring back memories Bring back your There's a time that I remember When I did not know no pain When I believed in forever And everything would stay the same Now my heart feel like December When somebody say your day Cause I can't reach out to call you But I know I will one day yeah. Everybody hurts sometimes Everybody hurts someday yeah, yeah. But everything gon' be alright Gonna raise a glass and say Cause the dreams bring back all the memories Of everything we've been through Toast to the ones here today Toast to the ones that we lost on the way Cause the drinks bring back all the memories And the memories bring back memories Bring back your Memories bring back memories Bring back your There's a time that I remember When I never felt so lost And I felt all of the hatred Was too powerful to stop oh, yeah. Now my heart feel like an ember And it's lighting up the dark I'll carry these torches for ya And you know I'll never try Yeah Everybody hurts sometimes Everybody hurts someday yeah, yeah. But everything gon' be alright Gonna raise a glass and say Cause the dreams bring back all the memories Of everything we've been through Toast to the ones here today Toast to the ones that we lost on the way Cause the drinks bring back all the memories And the memories bring back memories Bring back your Face, like, can I see a bus pass? Nah, we just want a little wine, bro. 